Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. One of the strongest retorts to the victimhood narrative that is too prevalent today is that our station in life, at least and perhaps especially in America, is not static. Our society welcomes and encourages people to move up the social ladder, and fate and bad decisions can also knock people down a few pegs as generations go by. Now, a good fact checker might have to report that as mostly true. We've certainly seen reports of next generations not being as well off as the previous one and questions about what a a seeming growing gap in income inequality might mean. But there are inequities in society that make it easier for some to climb and others not to. You aren't a progressive for acknowledging these facts, but you are a progressive, ironically enough, if you throw your hands up and believe there is nothing that can be done. A new study by the Archbridge Institute takes an important step forward in understanding what can be done to ensure that that American dream survives and indeed thrives. Um, Archbridge was founded in 2016 by my friend Gonzalo Schwartz, and it focuses on lifting the barriers that exist to the American dream. Archbridge recognizes that there are natural, interpersonal, situational barriers that can weaken social mobility, but also that government and weak or flawed institutions bear their share of blame as well. Today, we're going to talk to Gonzalo, as well as to Justin Calais, an assistant professor of economics and finance at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and he is the lead researcher on Archbridge's new Social Mobility Index. Now, honing in on a Single study may seem a departure from our usual fare at Giving Ventures, but here is why it's relevant. One is that either directly or indirectly, a lot of you listening use your philanthropy to support stronger mobility and an expansion of the American dream. So understanding the roadblocks that get in the way of of making those dollars get used effectively is important. But second, the study itself also incorporates the value of philanthropy and offers a few lessons on just the culture of giving and how it can affect the ability to break down and rise above the barriers that exist. So, Gonzalo, let's start with you and kind of start at the top. What more color do you want to add to Archbridge's uh, mission and, and maybe explain how this social mobility index fits into that mission? Well, thank you very much, Peter, and thank you very much for the invitation and Hi to all the listeners. Well, as you know, our mission at the Arbage Institute is to lift barriers to human flourishing. And we think of social mobility, which has been our focus since day one, as the economics of human flourishing. And we think social mobility is a more holistic way of thinking about how people climb the income ladder and achieve the American dream. It's about the opportunity to better oneself and those around them. And while it commonly refers, I think, to a person's ability to climb the income ladder and out-earn their previous generation, It's also concerned with achievement, aspiration, purpose, skills development, many other areas that we think give it a more uh, holistic understanding of what a person does to to flourish. And so how mobility is usually measured in the the academic literature is if a person out-earns their parents as adults, usually between 32 and 40 years of age. People take the parents' income at that age and then compare it to the son's or daughter's income 
at that same age later in life. And much of the economics profession, politics and policy research is just worried about measuring that variable. Like some people are worried about measuring income inequality or, or, or properly measuring poverty levels. And all of those things are, I think, we're good because we, we need to have a proper measurement and dimensions of our problems uh, to, to address and have better policy solutions. But we need to ask why there is more or less social mobility and what makes it happen. And that is the key goal of our index that is based on our research throughout the last few years, the research of Justin and uh, looking at the existing academic and policy literature on the topic. Through the, thing, uh, through the index, we want to provide sort of a scaffolding for how we should think about social mobility or the economics of human flourishing. And what has been also one of our missions from day one is to push for a consensus on what are the main barriers and two and leading indicators of social mobility. And in that way, policymakers, researchers, and the public at large can have a roadmap and key areas to work on as they seek to improve social mobility in their own states. And, it, and I think it's a better, uh, more positive narrative, more holistic narrative compared to that of income inequality, which nowadays dominates uh, that field and dominate discussions of social mobility, which is inequality ends up being just a fact of life, but it ends up being a zero-sum polarizing uh, negative narrative. And I think social mobility is a more uplifting one, it's a, it's, we think, as, a, as an antidote. You know, you mentioned that consensus around the issue. What do you think is the barrier to to getting that consensus on on social mobility is it a lack of data that this study helps to fill or or is it actually just different worldviews i think it's it's a little bit of both because there is a lot of just focus on the measurement part and not too much focus on the underlying uh factors that might affect it but when it comes to discussing some underlying factors there is that different worldviews in which some uh, the left or the right focus on on specific issues and but in a big way, I think both sides focus on uh, a lot of the taxes and redistribution aspects of them. Sometimes the left is just we need one more social plan, one, one more welfare plan to lift people out of poverty and enable more social mobility. And the right is like, well, if we're going to have that, we need we need a work requirement attached to it, which I think is is a fair thing to say. We should have some of those work requirements, but it's still it is around always that welfare and taxes and redistribution. And now there's other debates on income inequality that maybe Justin can talk more about around uh, if we're properly measuring inequality and poverty. So if we measure it, if, because if we look after taxes and transfers, we have less inequality, we have uh, less poverty. But is that the only solution, I think, to, to the problems, just to tax and redistribute more? It's, it's good to properly account for it, but I don't think that sort of gets us to the root causes of the issues. Right, there's a lot of variables in it all. So, so Justin, you were the lead researcher on this. You did the, the legwork. What, as you were going through the data, as you look at it holistically now, what are the biggest and most important things you learned doing this study? Yeah, uh, well, one, you know, thanks for the invitation and uh, very much looking forward to this conversation. But yeah, so there was a few different things that I found quite interesting in the study as it kind of came together and as we kind of looked through all the different aspects. Um, but, you know, kind of coming from my background, most of my pre-existing research had been on institutions, rules of the games, policies, and how they relate to various other factors like income or income inequality or other aspects of um, what we consider to be you know, measures of well-being or standards of living. So when it came to mobility, I was pretty stunned to find there was almost no work on relating institutions like um, economic freedom or property rights protection to mobility. So when the discussions came to working on this index, it, it was clear that 
those institutions or those policies were underrepresented. As Gonzalo just mentioned, um, there was a lot of, you know, it's a lot of debate is a lot is uh, on types of redistribution or what's the right exact, you know, amount of should we have more or less. And while those things, you know, matter to an extent, we, we thought that there was kind of, again, this holistic, well-rounded picture was really missing. So we wanted to make sure that we included institutions and you know, policies into our study. So we made sure to include two separate areas related to this since they measure distinctly different aspects. So one that we consider the environment for entrepreneurship and economic growth. And that's where we consider things like regulations, whether that's in occupations or housing, um, tax policies, as well as having a dynamic economy, which allows for a thriving entrepreneurial environment or matters for um, overall economic outcomes that matter for people's everyday lives but also the formal institutions like corruption or other forms of what we call predatory state action or the ways in which the state can not, um, instead of allowing for mobility, can actually get in the way and actually specifically target those who are often underrepresented or those who actually need the most help in achieving mobility who are at the lowest starting point. So we really wanted to uh, look at that as well as things like access to justice. So, you know, we all have or you know, every state, or at least in the United States, we have this idea of um, equal representation under the law or equal access to justice under the law. But also we wanted to measure, you know, well, how actually true is that among states? And do those states have high quality um, legal systems? Do those states have, um, you know, can you actually provide an access to justice in those areas? So that was kind of the first part that I found most um, surprising or important when looking at the mobility literature as a whole, which led into this discussion into working on this index, but also was how mobility is impacted through one's life. So clearly who you were born to matters a great deal as parental engagement and learning from your parents to know, to the surprise of nobody is crucial to your development as a child. And studies have found that actually matters a lot to adult outcomes as well, but also where you were born matters. It's not just the household that your parents raise you in, but the community that they raise you in as well. For example, other studies have shown that many outcomes for children are affected not just by whether or not you were born in a stable household, but also if you live in a community or neighbors that are born in a stable household, as it provides for a more well-rounded community. And you know, as people engage with one another, that sort of um, stability across families really sort of tends to build upon itself and matters for childhood income, uh, childhood outcomes. On a similar point, being born in a community that is connected across different groups, for example, like those of different incomes, matters for mobility, as researchers like Ross Chetty and his team has shown. So if you live in a charitable community, for example, there's better chances at mobility. But also if you live um, in an area with good education, that matters as well, both from the schools that you attend, as well as the soft skills that you learn from your parents and the other adult figures in your life. But again, once we get past those points in your life and you are now an adult making your own path, maybe living in a different area with your own family or your own household, the current environment of where you live matters as well. So this is some of the work that Vincent Geloso at George Mason and I have done relating economic freedom and other types of institutions to mobility. Um, and also Chris Boudreaux at, at Florida Atlantic University has done some work on this. So really, overall, it, it's the holistic approach. It's the whole life cycle approach to mobility that seems to matter for outcomes um, the most. Yeah, it really sounds like 
you mentioned that you mentioned the redistribution and we look so much at the the financial side of this equation but the water you're swimming in matters too and and the study gives you a unique laboratory in america to have 50 different uh, municipalities 51 if you want to count dc i don't know to, to me that's really interesting to look at that how does you mentioned rod shetty who gets a lot of attention in this arena right and what's one of his big findings was what the kindergarten teacher that you had actually or how much experience the kindergarten teacher you had changes the income you have you know 30 years later or whatever it is how different is the work here in this index from some of the stuff that he's doing yes i think that's a very interesting question um so with respect to us i guess we cared more about the sort of holistic approach kind of like what we mentioned before is that he's really focused on childhood influences as well as things like you mentioned, like what's, you know, what's the education of your kindergarten teacher or what's the you know quality of, of, of the schooling system. Um, but also, you know, he also looks at things like what's the actual measures of um, the social connectedness or the economic connectedness across the society. Well, again, we think one of the things that was missing and, you know, while all of those things are important and, you know, as best as we can tell, do matter for mobility, we think the things that are missing are a lot of, well, what are the actual foundations or what are the actual barriers that states or countries or areas or municipalities put into place that can get in the way of mobility or help improve it? So this is where I think a lot of the work that they're they're doing is, is you know, not necessarily wrong to any extent, but is instead missing a few different links. They sort of treat these institutions or these rules of the game as basically given or, you know, underexplored. Well, we think that's, well, that's a, a crucial part, right? You know, like you said, where, who, your, who your parents are, where you're born, that all matters. But also what matters is what's the institutions and what's the policies of the area you're living in today? If you live in an area that has really restrictive occupational licensing, well, then it's going to be really burdensome for someone who is on the lower income ladder to spend the time and resources and money to get a license to become like a, a hair uh, dresser or um, a, uh, a florist, for example. It's one of my favorite examples to give because Louisiana is the only state um, in the country that has a, a license to become a florist. Um, so, right. So if you want to become a florist in Louisiana and you are at a lower income standpoint, it's really difficult for you to justify, you know, spending the thousands of dollars needed to get the license and taking the time away, right? Those who can, afford to take that time and spend those resources are those who are already doing pretty well off, relatively speaking. I think that's one part that we wanted to really highlight and focus on is that it's it's not just different parts of someone's life. It's the whole life cycle. It's the whole entire part of someone's life that matters for mobility. And to complement that, I Rush Chetty's work is definitely one of the one of the most important works in the field. He does a lot of the work uh, Justin mentioned on measurement of mobility across metro areas. But I think what, at the end of the day, what's the main policy solution, policy variable, and we believe that our index might offer different avenues, but one of the main um, policy recommendations from all their work is, is a policy called moving to opportunity of just giving people housing vouchers for, to move from one low mobility state that uh, or, or metro area that might have worse school quality or, or lower uh, family structures and family stability indicators to one that has more of that. 
but it's just a voucher that moves to opportunity. And the results from those experiments that we have had a few in the United States have not been as positive. So the main, there is very few actionable research ideas that come from that work. And we're just trying to complement that and go and go a step further, look into other areas that I think they're not considering as much. Right. Well, and there's factors like the how many years your kindergarten teacher has been teaching is frankly not something you necessarily can control unless you have that additional layer of school choice policy that allows you the flexibility to seek out the more experienced teacher or the higher rated school, et cetera. So there are these two tiers to it. So I, th- I think you, you articulate that well. All right. So, so there's a bunch of factors. You've rattled off some of them. The four top line ones that you're looking at are entrepreneurship and economic growth, the institutions and the rule of law, education and skills development, and then this last one, social capital. Um, and of course, one that is interesting and relevant to us here, uh, and also I think understudied uh, in a lot of a lot of the other research, at least as far as I can tell, and so a bit novel, is that social capital variable. And one of the things that you include in there, of course, is charity and charitable regulations. So what are you measuring around philanthropy and charitable giving, et cetera? And what'd you learn from that? Yeah, I would let uh, Justin speak a little bit more to the specific variables um, that we used. But social capital, I think more broadly in the academic and policy research, social capital and community, I think is key if we want to have thriving communities where citizens feel that they are helping others pursue their dreams and goals, as well as getting the support that they themselves need through some of these organizations. Charity and nonprofits, as your listeners know and live by day to day, are a key part of, a, of American society. Sometimes the sector is called the independent sector, as there are areas of life that are better addressed, not by politics or even business, but by a third independent sector that enables other work to take place that doesn't necessarily uh, should or, or does take place through business and also work that is uh, not impersonal as a universal government program or, or agency provides. So there is that need for that third sector. And why, why it's important is that the sector does help people overcome barriers to mobility that are more personal in nature, barriers that I think policy reform can't really affect that much. Barriers that are intrinsic to individuals like overcoming addictions, coming out of prison and looking for a job, helping families who don't have an ideal family structure or even retraining for a job or finding support in between jobs. Sometimes even more broadly, finding meaning in life through activities and missions of specific nonprofit. Nonprofit seeing as meaning is a crucial ingredient for mental health and a flourishing life. So some of these things, policy reform or policy overall politics can solve, but nonprofit organizations and, and charity can help address. And the one caveat I would say is that even though we don't make that distinction here in the studies, that we should keep in mind that that charity needs to empower people and build on people's agency. Uh, to quote one of my mentors, uh, Arthur Brooks, we need to see people as assets to develop and not liabilities to manage. So true charity, and there's a great organization by that name led by uh, Jens Whitford, uh, that true charity is about empowerment, is about fostering a sense of individual individual agency in people that regardless of their station in life, the where they start, that they're entrepreneurs of their own life, that they can overcome barriers. Many times that work, coupled with strong social capital through family, friends, and community, makes all the difference when it comes to social mobility. So Justin, what are those specific charitable measures that you're looking at? Yeah, so I think Gonzalo kind of laid the the foundation really well as to why we thought it was very important to actually consider and and to measure, um, because I think the charitable part of social capital is so crucial. Like while there obviously exists a role in today's society that governments do play in providing for those who are less fortunate or those who fell on hard times. This can often be seen as disconnecting amongst those in a society 
and even to some um, respects, and I would argue is ostracizing, as it's seen as taking resources away from others, right? As you know, as any good economist would say, there's an opportunity cost. While charity, on the other hand, is all about helping those who are in need and building a community. Whenever we actually think about what we want to measure for this, we included pretty standard measures of charity, um, at least across what other people have measured in terms of um, social capital or ways to think about charity, which are the percentage of people that do- in a state that donated at least $25 or more in the last year, percent of people that volunteered in the last year, and the number of nonprofits and religious organizations or religious congregations per 1,000 people. Um, again, these are all these all make someone a part of the solution and keep them engaged in helping those in need, right? You by becoming engaged and you know by donating or volunteering with your time, you become a part of the solution. You get to know these people, you get to hear their stories, you get to find unique, individualized ways to help them in ways that large welfare systems just can't possibly do, just due to the bandwidth and the different situations that people need help with. Um, so I think that's where charity plays a very important part, and that's why we wanted to include these, you know, kind of standard measures. Um, however, one thing we thought was important and perhaps missing from many other aspects was including a measure of charity regulations that a group called the Philanthropy Roundtable had a data set that, that, that looked at this. So this tells us what's the burdens that states place that make it difficult to actually help in times of need. So what are the regulations respects to starting a charity? What's the regulations with respect to annual reporting and auditing and those sorts of requirements that are needed to ensure you're fitting the you know proper um, descriptions of what's a nonprofit? Um, if you make that overly burdensome, then it's going to be harder to start a charity in the first place. It's going to be harder to maintain and operate. You make it more expensive to operate. So if you have to go through more regulations and hoops in order to prove that you are a real charity every single year, well, that's taking resources away that were given to you by someone else that should be going to helping others, but is instead going to filling uh, bureaucratic um, paperwork. Um, well, you're making, you know, you're making it burdensome, so you're making it harder to start the charities, you're making it harder to operate the charities. So therefore, you're going to see, all things equal, fewer charities in those areas that make it overly burdensome. So you know, in economics, we want to try to capture not just the scene, but the unseen. So this sort of regulation variable helps us try to capture that unseen that we care about or the charities that didn't form, but would have formed if not for these overly burdensome regulations. How correlative were the charitable variables to the overall rankings? I know Utah was the number one. Louisiana was last. Um, yeah, I think my home state of Virginia here was dead center. Uh, you know, the it's not always Utah, not necessarily a surprise. Louisiana may be a surprise that it's at the bottom, but a few surprises here and there. How correlative was the charitable factor to the overall piece or was it all over the place? It was, you know, for, for what I noticed that it seemed like the outliers were pretty um, standards. Like you mentioned, like Utah, right. Was first in our social capital measure and also was very close to the top in terms of charity. But Louisiana, like you mentioned, was surprisingly, at least to me, surprisingly low. I thought, if anything, that would be an area that Louisiana scored pretty high on. Um, but they scored, I believe, 46th with respect to charity, which, mm. again, is very low, but they did score 50th overall. So what we found of, you know, actually when looking at the specifically the charity va- variable and how it correlated to the actual rankings, it coincided a little bit more closely than many of the other variables. I, uh, I'm not exactly sure as to why that would be the case, 
but I did find it at least interesting when looking at those states. But as you mentioned, there are some outliers where, well, for example, like Hawaii is ranked 39th with respect to charity, but is, you know, 29th overall. So like there is some disconnect. But overall, there seems to be it seems to be pretty close with respect to those rankings. But there is some other. I mean, you mentioned Arthur Brooks earlier, who's done some research on giving charitably can actually lead to an increase in income. It certainly leads to increased social connectedness. So it it seems to me the tissue is there to connect a lot of these things once it comes to to charitable. So what what is the right way for listeners who want to invest in social mobility? to invest, whether they call that economic empowerment or social mobility, how do you actually put a charitable dollar to work toward increasing social mobility? Yeah, I think the right the right thing to do, uh, a big part of it is to invest more and even talk more about programs and research and projects that show the power of work to climb the income ladder. Often the conversation on mobility is about, as we mentioned, tweaking the safety net and what social welfare plan we should work on. Uh, or impose work a uh, work requirement or not, which we should, but just more broadly, the conversation about a job, work, and just job creation through entrepreneurship in the private sector as the main way people climb the income ladder and earn income is underappreciated. That role of entrepreneurship and business and generating more social mobility is underappreciated. It's taken for granted. So we definitely need to highlight that more, invest in groups that do that more, as well as programs that, uh, that help people get to work or get back to work is, is crucial. Another area that is, I think, under-discussed, as we uh, talked about a little bit before, is the role of family structure. Uh, from the perspective about the, the crucial nature of families and parental engagement to help kids develop skills at a young age, that is the responsibility, I think, of parents to provide that early childhood education, not a universal pre-K program, because then families develop the skills that later in life kids use in the labor market. So many of the disadvantages or inequalities that we see later in life that, that require a distribution or referral plan can be seen at a very young age. According to, to our uh, senior fellow, James Heckman, you can see that the inequalities you see between ages zero and three, you can see them later in life. So there should be a focus, I think, a lot on that early childhood education. But more broadly in this index, we've partnered and used the research, I think, of many organizations in the freedom movement that are conducting, I think, important work into sub-areas that affect social mobility. So I think it's it's worth highlighting the work of, for example, Ed Choice, which we use to highlight the importance of educational choice, the works of a tax foundation, which we use to compile state taxes and business climate, uh, the work of the Institute for Justice on civil asset forfeiture, uh, the work of the Knee Regulatory Center in West Virginia, who we partnered with to construct an occupational licensing index earlier this year that is part of this index as well, the work of the McKetty Center in terms of regulation, the work of Free Up, which we use as a measurement for return on investment for colleges, and as Justin just mentioned, the philanthropy roundtable in terms of charity, charitable regulations or the work of, of reason in, compi in uh, compiling fines and fees collected by the government, which is part of one, one of the variables. I'm sure I'm missing a few others, but I think the work of all of these organizations is worth supporting and provides important policy roadmaps to work on solutions on many of those specific areas. And But seeing that in terms of social mobility, local or state environments matter more in, for than federal level issues. And our index is focused on the states. I think the work of many state-based think tanks like Pelican Institute, Georgia Center for Opportunity, Badger Institute, the Illinois Policy Institute, and many others is crucial to remove the barriers to social mobility. While we're working at Archbridge at sort of building the scaffolding of the economics of human flourishing and social mobility, the work of many of these organizations at the state level, which we consider partners or sort of brothers and sisters in arms, is crucial to ultimately accomplish some policy reforms at the state level and change the public narrative on this issue. So that's sort of from the, from the policy standpoint. Yeah, I think the 
change that we've seen over the past decade, maybe half decade of more of the groups that you just rattled off there thinking about the work they're doing is actually empowering people in more explicitly in those terms and then shifting the work, shifting the language they use has been a, one of the great things about the, the broader SPN umbrella and the, the national think tanks as well of thinking, how do they, how does this work actually trickle down to everybody, right? Not to just some or few, not that it ever did, but articulating that better. And I think this will, this will help. So what do you hope that policymakers will do with this report? Is that the right audience? Is that the, the real measurement there? I think policymakers, mostly at the state level, I think, are definitely one of the key audiences that we have for this report. As we mentioned, there's a lot of discussion in academic and policy circles about the measurement of a lot of these issues, but there's less of a discussion of what influences mobility and what drives some states and, and metro areas to be more upward, upwardly mobile than others. And as we said, there's currently no broad consensus or one of the main barriers or leading indicators to mobility. So. What our research in this index attempts is to provide a framework and guideposts on how policymakers should think about cultivating an environment that supports social mobility. Some of the areas we identified can be addressed through policy reform, while others may depend on solutions from the private sector or individuals. But our main hope with this research is that it starts a conversation among policymakers and provides some ideas to help st uh, states improve the social mobility outlook or for funders who want to work more with that independent, sectors, uh, independent sector and work more on the ground with some of these organizations that they think about it, um, they think about some of the variables that are there as a way also to empowering individuals at the state level, at the very local level. Yeah, and going off of that, following up on that, I think this index in, in a sense is unique in, in the sense that it is of interest to policymakers, like Gonzalo mentioned, I think to broadly to those um, just in general in, in, in the public. Um, at least in my experience, since releasing the index, I've, I've had friends and family members who are not in this uh, circle who have, you know, looked at it and, and found it interesting. Of especially those from Louisiana, as okay, why are we, you know, why are we not doing as well? And it's got them interested. And in, okay, what can be done to fix Louisiana? Because one thing we, you know, at least people from Louisiana, usually think about is that oh, well, we're from an area that supports one another, helps each other out. But when we look at the data, it doesn't seem to actually show up, and it, it's sort of this disconnect. So I think it's interesting to policymakers. It's interesting to academic researchers, researchers at different think tanks. Um, so one thing, you know, on the policymaker side is when I'll note this is that even in states that seem to do the best on mobility, like Utah, for example, who again ranks number one, um, there's still much room for improvement. So even in a state like Utah, that, that Utah has pretty decently restrictive housing or land use regulations, as well as pretty burdensome occupational licensing. And they score pretty low on education freedom and university mobility, which measures a student's a return on investment to a college degree. So, of course, this is better than in a state like mine, where I live, Louisiana, which scores low on pretty much basically every single measure possible. You know, where they where Louisiana ranks best is about where Utah ranks worst on a lot of the measures. But even then, right, it, it goes to show that it's still important to point out where each state could be doing better. So I think even in places that seem to score really well, one thing I found interesting in this index is that there's still a lot of room for improvement. And again, that since we're looking at it from a holistic standpoint, there's certain areas that places do really well at. So like Texas, for example, is doing really well on tax policies and other ways to make it a dynamic environment to where people can move there. 
but they actually score very low in our social mobility ranking, in part because they score low on all these other measures like institutions and rule of law and education, freedom and um, social capital and charity. So it, 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 it's a really interesting project overall because I think it provides, you know, each and every state can learn something or each and every uh, state has something that they can be working on, but also something they can be proud of in terms of things that they're doing well. And Gonzalo, something you said made me realize one of the big lessons I think that all of us need to take away from this research is that there is no silver bullet, that, that we may have this goal in mind, but there's a lot of roads to get there. And in fact, you can't just take one road to get there. You have to take all the roads. Uh, they they all matter. And and where that matters for folks listening and trying to influence policymakers or just figuring out where to use their dollars in the independent sector and with nonprofits is what you think is the best solution is part of the solution. And so go all in, put your money behind the, the piece that you are most passionate about, but don't be oblivious to the fact that other people working on other lanes still matter too. Exactly. Yep. Completely agree with that. Well, Gonzalo and Justin, this is very interesting research and I look forward to seeing how Archbridge continues to, to push it out. I hope many people see it and look at it. You rattled off a great list of different organizations and hopefully all of them will take it and run with it because there's a lot of lessons in here. And, uh, and this is a great continuation of the work you've been building there at Archbridge. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Peter. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. I really like the way that Archbridge has taken a broader view of what social mobility really means. And I tend to agree with them that it's a much more important metric to measure than income inequality. I mean, after all, measuring inequality is a weaker measure if people are able to freely move up and down the economic ladder. Someone's always going to be at the bottom quartile but they shouldn't be doomed to stay there forever any more than somebody at the top has a right to stay up there forever. Hopefully you picked up a few ideas in the discussion of ways your charitable dollar can support this idea of increasing social mobility, or perhaps we're encouraged to hear Gonzalo rattle off one of the groups that you already support. Well, this marks the first episode of 2024, and we have an exciting crop of episodes coming up covering topics ranging from training conservative minds, and not just the young ones this time, to Second Amendment, school scholarship groups, libertarian policy, and so much more. Please, I hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss an episode, or go to donorstrust.org podcast, and there you can actually sign up to get an email that'll let you know when we release new episodes. I hope your 2024 has started off well and marks just the first steps into a really great year for you. Thank you so much for being on this journey with us. Thank you for being a giver. Let's talk more soon. Mm-hmm.